Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for August 5th, 2015. I'm Michael Clark from Clark & Company. Retractions of scientific research papers are becoming more frequent and attracting more attention from the media, from science journals, and from researchers themselves. Part of the reason for this increased focus on retractions is the website Retraction Watch, a journalism initiative that covers scientific retractions and reports on the stories behind them. I'm here today with Ivan Aransky, the co-founder of Retraction Watch. Aransky is the sort of person that makes everyone else seem like they have far too much time on their hands. In addition to running Retraction Watch, he is vice president and global editorial director of MedPage Today. He also teaches medical journalism at New York University's Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program and is vice president of the Association of Healthcare Journalists. He additionally holds an appointment as clinical assistant professor of medicine at NYU. Mr. Aransky, this week marks the fifth anniversary of Retraction Watch. Congratulations on your five-year anniversary. Thanks very much, Michael. For those readers not familiar with the project or who may have heard of it but have not visited your website, can you describe it in a nutshell? Sure. So Retraction Watch is really set up to look at, as the sort of label on the tin says, to you know look for, watch, um, and then analyze and, and report on retractions. So there are you know, a few hundred refractions a year, and we are looking at what the reasons for those are. Often you'll see notices that don't say very much or, in fact, are misleading. Uh, uh, Some would argue sometimes intentionally, sometimes it just sort of ends up that way because people are trying to be careful. And so we're trying to really look at what the reasons are. Number one, for really journalistic reasons, there are a lot of good stories behind all these. Uh, And number two, primarily for transparency sake, we're trying to get a sense of how retractions and retraction notices reflect the self-correcting nature of science. What can we learn from how papers are retracted that can, you know, help us understand how and when and whether science corrects itself. And what led you down this road? What led you and your co-founder, Adam Marcus, to create Retraction Watch? Well, Adam and I had both, and, and I would say independently, even though we you know knew each other uh, quite well for a number of years now, had found that there were good stories behind a lot of retractions. Adam had broken a pretty major story about someone who eventually went to prison for healthcare fraud related to scientific misconduct. Uh, Scott Rubin in Western Massachusetts had actually made up all of the patients he was allegedly describing in more than 20 studies. He's an anesthesiology researcher. And Adam, because he worked at a trade publication covering anesthesiology at the time, had broken this story. And, and again, this turned into something, really a national story. When a researcher goes to prison, which is quite, quite rare, uh, that, that was a big story. And I had, working at The Scientist and having a, you know, a small team of reporters and editors, I'd kind of worked with them to understand retractions and to always use them as a good springboard for a story. And, and again, often that really paid off for us. So Adam and I would trade emails and phone calls about different retractions we saw periodically. And, you know, one day I kind of went to him and said, what about starting a blog? You know, I'd been doing a different blog called Embargo Watch about scientific embargoes. It was really, really tiny and remains pretty tiny. But it kind of taught me how to blog and what building an audience meant. And Adam said, sure, what, what does that mean? You know, I don't know what that means, but let's try it. And, and so we launched it five years ago. And do you have any... Um sense of the size of the retraction issue? In other words, uh, about how many, what proportion of, of papers are retracted? So the number of papers retracted every year is about five or 600. 
And, and I think that that's going to be an important number to talk about, but that it's also important to just remember what a tiny, tiny fraction of papers published every year that is. The number of papers published every year, depending on which databases you go to and what have you, is you know, somewhere between 1.4 and 2 million, maybe 2 million plus. So you're talking about you know, a percentage roughly like 0.02%, 0.03%, again, depending on what you're looking at. Really, really small. Um, that being said, that five or 600 number is much, much bigger than it used to be. In 2001, there were about 40 retractions. In 2010, there were about 400 retractions. Uh, Nature reported that several years ago using uh, Thompson Scientific data. And, and again, that trend isn't, has continued a bit. The number is up uh, you know, a bit more. And, you know, may continue to rise, although it may plateau. We're not quite sure at this point. So it's a very, very small number, but it is a, a growing number. And it also probably reflects only a fraction of the papers that probably should be retracted. Uh, maybe the right number, uh, you know, the right number is not, you know, 10% or something like that. But it, you know, might be closer to, you know, a few times what we're looking at now. But still a, a pretty rare event. And, it, and retraction should be a, a relatively rare event. Well, that, that brings up an interesting point and something I was going to ask about. Are the number of retractions and the fact that they are increasing, is that a positive or a negative for science and science publishing? In, in other words, are more papers being rejected because there are more flawed articles? Or are there proportionately the same number of flawed articles, but they're just being identified and withdrawn more than they had in the past? I think there's a lot of evidence for, uh, I would say, so what's sort of your, your latter idea, namely that th there always were a certain percentage of papers that were fraudulent or had serious, uh, if honest, mistakes, but that you know people just weren't catching, people weren't picking up. And that makes sense because until quite recently, and, and I would argue it tracks really well with the rise in retractions that we've seen over the past couple decades, until quite recently, you know, papers weren't online. If you wanted to go look at a paper, you had to go to the library or get a paper copy or something like that. Um, now, lots more papers are online, whether they're open access or not. And so lots more eyeballs are going to find lots more issues. And, and that's a good thing. Plagiarism detection software, you know, relatively new introduction, relatively new phenomenon. Uh, Ten years ago, you really didn't have uh, barely any publishers using it. And as that has grown, that has also picked up papers that need to be retracted, whether it's for plagiarism or for duplication, right? Sort of AKA self-plagiarism, which is technically impossible, but that, that's sort of the <laughs> colloquial way to think about it. So all of that points to the fact that, you know, we're, we are, and I mean, by, by we, I really mean the scientific community is better at finding problematic papers. And, and that, I would argue, is a good thing because it you know, it means that you're going to be cleaning up the literature and correcting the literature much more easily. The sort of unanswered question is whether or not this increase in retractions actually reflects more fraud and misconduct. There's some circumstantial evidence for that, uh, and people sort of argue about it, and I think that they're, you know, trying to sort of figure it all out. But I would put that evidence at a, at a much, you know, lower sort of uh, quality level, uh, robustness level than the evidence that we're just better at finding these, these problems. Why don't we know that? In, in other words, is this a, an issue with the um, retraction notices themselves? You've mentioned in the past the opacity of some of those notices. Yeah, so one of the issues, and, and again, one of the sort of big reasons I would say we launched Retraction Watch was because we noticed how many of these retraction notices were opaque, were not particularly helpful, didn't really say what happened. And that became... I think we, we now have evidence for just how much that was warping the literature. 
because of a 2012 paper that came out by uh, Ferrick Fang, Granstein, Arturo Casadevall in PNAS that found that two-thirds of retractions were due to something that would be considered misconduct. So fabrication, falsification, plagiarism, which is the sort of Office of Research Integrity federal definition of misconduct. When Granstein had done that same kind of analysis, just I think it was three years earlier, maybe two years earlier, uh, he found that fewer than half of retractions were due to something that would be considered misconduct. And that didn't act, the actual data didn't change. In other words, the actual retractions themselves weren't changing. What changed was that we actually now knew the answer to why a lot of these opaque notices, which were being classified as unknown or not fraudulent, were being retracted, you know, what, what the reasons for those retractions was. And again, and you can go to the paper and check this out, and maybe it's just, you know, something that should get checked out because I obviously have a bias here, but they thanked us. And in fact, Retraction Watch is a key part of their supplemental information because a lot of the ones that didn't say anything in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, which they called out uh, for problems like this, and which we certainly call out pretty often on Retraction Watch for this, uh, has, you know, deeply opaque, I would say, notices. And when you actually figured out what a lot of those retractions were for, it was, in fact, for fraud or, you know, something that would be considered misconduct. So our understanding of all this is changing, and it changes quite rapidly. And have the, have the journals that have been uh, opaque with their retraction notices like JBC, has there been any, any um, movement or responsiveness to your critique? Well, I think in, in general terms, we have seen some movement. Uh, there are retraction notices that actually cite retraction watch and sort of say things like, if you try this again, we're going to report it to retraction watch. Or according to retraction watch, you know, here's a good notice and here's why we're going to include all this information. So there's been some of that. Uh, JBC in particular, actually the, the publisher, the ASPMB, they actually hired someone who was supposed to be in charge of sort of scientific ethics, uh, publishing ethics, and was supposed to help, according to the job description, write retraction notices, uh, that kind of faded away. And, and their notices, with a few exceptions, and those are only really the ones where the ORI, Office of Research Integrity, has found something and put it into the public record in the, in the federal register. Uh, with, with, with those as the few exceptions, their notices are still completely opaque. They say things like, and the entire notice says something like, this paper, this article has been withdrawn by the author. Hmm. That's not a particularly helpful notice. And we now, although we were pretty excited and, and actually praised them for hiring someone who uh, was going to be in charge of publication ethics, we're now sort of back to thinking they really aren't taking these issues very seriously. How, how, now, how do you go about finding retractions in the first place? I mean, obviously, they're public and a matter of public record, but um, do you have um, specialized software to find these things among the sea of two million or so papers? Or are you relying on search alerts and things like, um, you know, Web of Science or PubMed or Google Scholar? So the answer is all the above. And if, you know, Michael, if I gave you the sort of detailed uh, answer and all the secrets, I'd, I'd have to kill you. And, and, you know, <laughs> don't want to admit that on the radio or on a podcast. But, no, I think, you know, what, what, a couple things. One is that when we first started, of course, uh, we just sort of did it all ourselves. And so, you know, we set up all the alerts that you mentioned, Google and PubMed and Thompson Scientific, uh, and, and things came in. And, and we still do all those things, still get a lot of tips from those. But very quickly, as we grew our readership, and our readership now is about 200,000 uh, uniques per month, uh, people just, the tips started streaming in, 
And there are more than we know what to do with. I mean, again, if there are five or 600 a year, uh, we now have a staff, thanks to a wonderful uh, grant from the MacArthur Foundation, to hire two people. Uh, so we're, we're better able to keep up with the retractions. But, you know, that's basically, if there are 250 business days a year, that's kind of two plus a day. And that would mean keeping up. And that would mean that every single one of our posts was about a single retraction. And, you know, sometimes we're following up. Sometimes we're reporting on something else that's interesting. So, you know, we're not quite keeping up, although we're getting much closer to that. But, you know, it's a lot of tips from a lot of people, and, and they send us all sorts of interesting things, sometimes about papers that should be retracted, for example. All of this, though, and, and what the grant is actually for, is to build a database of retractions that's comprehensive so that everything will be in there and not just an entry that, oh, by the way, this was retracted, but, in fact, here's the real reason why. You know, here's what we found when we did some reporting, or here's what some other media source did, and we're going to link to them. You know, this is actually pretty important. It, it seems like an academic issue. And I suppose that that's, you know, that's sort of a, a pun at this point, since we're talking about academia here and, and academic publishing. But more than 90% of the time, when retracted papers are cited, they're cited as if the paper had never been retracted. And, and those data are from uh, John Budd and his colleagues. And he actually has replicated that. He's done that study twice now. Uh, so that's pretty concerning. And, and it suggests a lot of things. But one of them is that the word about the retractions is just not getting out. It's not clear to many people when they look at the abstract or the full paper even, that the paper's been retracted. And that's really a core part of what the database that we're building is going to try and fix. That's fantastic. I, I'm actually uh, amazed that that doesn't already exist. Um, and it's interesting that you guys have come at this from a, um, a journalistic perspective, covering individual retraction notices, you know, beginning on an ad hoc basis and, and moving towards comprehensiveness, whereas, you know, much that happens within, you know, scientific and scholarly publishing actually starts the opposite direction with, with a database and then people report on that. So you guys have, have, have moved in the opposite direction of, of what I would have thought would have happened. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, it, it, there are a couple of ways to think about that. I mean, one is that, you know, we think of ourselves as really a trade journalism organization, right? In other words, we're a news organization, but we're serving a particular audience. In our case, it's, you know, scientists, obviously publishers and journal editors and what have you, but this is a service for science. And so what that means is that we are actually looked at quite differently, I think, by, by funders, for example. So you know, MacArthur funds a lot of media. They fund a lot on NPR and, and things like that. Um, and I'm sure that they're very happy to do that. Uh, and it's very important, and I'm quite happy they do that because I like all those programs. Um, but we're actually being funded out of a different program that really looks more at, it's a sort of specialized program that is really interested in scientific integrity among other issues and, and data and things like that. And so we are sort of journalism in the service of that rather than the other way around. So we're not, you know, competing right now. Maybe one day we will, but for, you know, grants from, you know, the Knight Foundation and others that are doing really important work in terms of funding, you know, whether it's journalism startups or local journalism enterprises. And, and those are critically important too. But, you know, we're, we're a different play. And, you know, we think about ourselves that way. And, and the final thing I'd say is it could be, and, and I would sort of agree with your assessment that we're sort of coming at it maybe the, the opposite way you would expect, but it's also going to feed it's, it's a feedback loop so that once the database does exist, we very much want not just us, but other reporters to pick up on it and mine it and look for things. We want scholars to do the same thing. You know, there's a growing scholarship of retractions. I mean, it sounds kind of 
tiny and meta, but I guess a lot of things in scholarly publishing are. Um, we published, Adam and I published a, a review of the Retraction Watch literature last December. And had we tried to do that, you know, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, it would have been a handful of papers, but it wouldn't have been a very robust review. And it's still not, you know, some amazing sort of, you know, huge literature. But, you know, there were more than, you know, three dozen papers we could choose from uh, and cite. And in fact, that's growing. That's grown since then. I, we've been picking up on some other papers in the area. So people are really starting to look at this as an issue. Uh, and it's something that they can study and, and learn from. Within that review of the literature, can can you point to any trends within within this um, literature, um, especially over the you know the last few years that you've been um, uh, covering it? There's some interesting things. I, one of the things we're often asked is, you know, what fields have the most attractions? And I, I don't want to you know malign the people looking at it because they're actually trying to do their best, and it's they do the best that you can given the data. The data tend to be a little squishy because things are categorized in a hundred different ways and you don't always know the denominator and, and things like that. But there are some, you know, some general trends. Uh, you know, you see sort of life sciences has the most attractions, but again, a vanishingly small number, things like that. You know, people ask which countries have the most attractions. Those data are even squishier. One of the sort of, we think, interesting things to look at is what effect does a retraction or a group of retractions have on a scientist career or on a field. And there are a couple of papers out now that we think suggest something that is sort of a good news story, if, if you will. And, and what I mean by that is if you have a retraction for fraud or you know, misconduct, and it's clearly fraud or misconduct, you see in the citations of that person's work and, and in fact, the citations of that field's work afterward, what you would expect to see, which is to say, you see a decline. In fact, you know, as much as 10 or 15% of a decline in, in citations. So there is, if you will, a kind of punishment of that person and even of the field. If, on the other hand, you have a retraction that is clearly for honest error, then instead you don't see a decline in citations afterward. In fact, you might even be seeing, although this, these data are a little bit softer right now, but you may even be seeing an increase in the citations, a bump in the citations. So what that suggests to us is that it's really important to delineate why retraction happened because it shouldn't be automatically assumed that there's fraud involved. And yet, so many retractions, when they're opaque, well, that's the assumption people make. It's kind of a no comment, and people sort of assume the worst. But really, that's that's not necessarily the case. Well, that's really interesting. And I, and I noticed that uh, Retraction Watch recently highlighted a set of retractions in a positive light. Your interview, recent interview, I think just last week with Pamela uh, Ronald and, and Benjamin uh, Spicinger at the Australian National University discussed their retraction, uh, which included a retraction of a, a couple articles. One was a, a high a high-profile paper in science due to a um, honest experimental error, which they've subsequently corrected and, you know, resulted in publication of a, of a new article um, now in Science Advances. But is there a stigma attached to retractions, even when it's for honest reasons? You know, there still is. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted the, uh, I'm glad you noticed and highlighted the Q&A we did with Pam and, and Benjamin. Um, you know, we had been following this story and, in fact, this and some other uh, posts that we had put up prompted one of our readers to say, you know, you should have a doing the right thing category. And we said, that's a fantastic idea. So we actually, we have a category on the site, which is, you know, easily findable, that is doing the right thing. And I don't know how many posts there are on it right now. I haven't done a count, but I'm going to guess it's, you know, it's it maybe 5% of our posts or something like that. 
And what we mean by doing the right thing is, you know, you, you did what it took to correct the scientific literature, even if that was, you know, at some personal sacrifice. The paper in particular that you're mentioning, you know, this is uh, done by researchers who are studying, uh, in, among other things, uh, genetically modified you know, foods or organisms, GMOs. And as we both know, that's a very contentious issue and a very political issue. And people can get into really nasty fights about that. And they've been very much the subject of those kinds of attacks. And so retracting a paper, you know, really could have a, a serious effect on them. But, but I would argue that in the long term and probably even in the short term, having done that and, and done something positively is a, you know, is a good thing. It should be rewarded and, and really championed. That's why we have continued to cover this and, and talk to, to Pam and Benjamin after this new paper was published. But the answer is yes, there, there's still a stigma attached to retractions, and which, again, we think just reinforces the idea that it's important to say why exactly something was retracted. I mean, retractions are the nuclear option when it comes to self-correction in the literature. And there's no question that retracting a paper, you know, is something that is not done lightly and shouldn't be done lightly. But when you look at all the incentives for in science and everything points to the published paper, having to retract the published paper, regardless of what the reason is, if that's what your career is based on, it's what your tenure and your promotions and your grants are based on, you know, you're going to fight like heck to not retract that paper, uh, regardless of what the reason is. And so there is still definitely a stigma attached. To that point and the, um, the, the career pressures, there seem to be a lot of uh, retractions lately from junior researchers. Um, just last week, Retraction Watch highlighted two retractions uh, associated with a graduate student at the University of Colorado. Uh, four retracted papers associated with a postdoc at the University of Oregon, a retracted paper with a postdoc at Penn State, um, and all three sets of papers were retracted for fake data. And then, of course, there was uh, a couple months ago the widely covered retraction of the science paper from uh, graduate student Michael LaCour. Are these outliers? Um, or is this a trend? You know, are the pressures on graduate students and postdocs, just given the career climate in, in science today and difficulty of landing a, a tenured position, are, are those leading more junior researchers to um, questionable um, or outright fraudulent practices? It's, a, it's an excellent question. It's the right question to be asking. Um, it's not necessarily a question that is easily answered. Uh, and I think one of the things that muddies the waters here, and not necessarily in the cases that you've just mentioned, but uh, certainly in some others, is that postdocs and grad students, they're, they're the most vulnerable people in a lab. And if you compound that vulnerability with the fact that many of them are on uh, visas that require them to be employed, and in fact their visas may more or less be tied to the universities, the institutions where they're working, you don't have to, as a, as a PI, as a principal investigator, come out and say, uh, we need X data or else we're, you know, you're going to get fired or fake the data, please. I mean, you, you would, I wouldn't expect people to say that, but you can create an environment or at least not discourage an environment in which it's pretty clear that if we don't, you know, the lab doesn't get certain kinds of data that look and go in certain directions that you're going to have to not necessarily close the lab down, but, uh, you know, have fewer postdocs or fewer grad students or fewer lab techs. And so it's kind of a, it's a murky picture. And one of the most useful things to look at here was, is the interviews that a lot of the people found to have committed misconduct by Office of Research Integrity uh, in, in the U.S. here 
have said to investigators when interviewed, and and a lot of them actually describe this very this tension. And depending on what sort of seniority they're at in the lab, number one, the sanctions tend to be much worse if you are junior. So if you are a postdoc or a graduate student and you're found to have committed misconduct, uh, your career is probably over. I mean, not 100%, but probably over. If you're a senior researcher, uh, well, not always the case. And certainly not if you weren't involved, but may, or maybe you just it happened in your lab that almost, almost never has any real sanctions. But again, there's some, some gray areas there. So it's, it's something to definitely look at. But I think, you know, again, as you point out, going to incentives, uh, losing a particular paper if you are a senior researcher or, or flip the other way, making sure to get a particular paper published in a top journal if you're a senior researcher, the push to do that is going to be a little bit more muted than if you are a postdoc who needs to go out and compete for a tenure track position with, you know, 50 or 100 other people. Are there any recent retractions that you've covered that um, are particularly notable or noteworthy? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I feel like uh, a little bit like, um, you know, and I don't have any children, so maybe I don't even know what I'm talking about here, but <laughs> oh, which was your favorite uh, child, you know, sort of thing. I, I mean, and, and, and I wouldn't claim that, oh, they're, they're, you know, they're all noteworthy or, or anything like that, but I think that there are, are some, I mean, there's one that I, I would sort of argue is a bit funny, a bit amusing. Um, and that is that the, uh, there was a set of plagiarism uh, guidelines. In other words, guidelines against plagiarism. Here's what to avoid in a, a, a journal, Indian Journal of Dermatology, that it, it turned out were actually plagiarized. Um, <laughs> we, you know, is that the most important thing in the world? No, but it, it certainly, it certainly made us laugh a bit. You know, there's no question that the, the LaCour, uh, case, which, which you mentioned briefly, uh, this was a, a major uh, retraction that really caught a lot of people, I, I guess I would say by surprise, but also really made a lot of people set up, sit up and take attention. You know, so here's a graduate student who, you know, claimed to have some data, a senior person at another university trusted this person and actually never even looked at those data, which is another issue. Uh, they published a paper in Science, obviously gets retracted. But if you look at how it got retracted and why, and the fact that it was actually other graduate students at another institution that pointed out the problems and went about things in a very methodical way and eventually actually published their findings you know, online, not, not peer-reviewed, but published those findings online so that everyone could see it, including me at, you know, 6.30 in the morning, or maybe even earlier than that, thanks to uh, somebody who tweeted them at me uh, even earlier than that. Uh, you know, that, that's a pretty remarkable story. The fact that it happened very quickly was a remarkable story. But it caught the entire world's attention. I mean, I, I did nothing but media calls for about a month after that story. Um, I, you know, I, wherever I was, people wanted to talk to me about this particular thing. Uh, New York Times profiled us. Uh, it's about a month and a half ago now. And it really, because it's, it was sort of building from this this story. I mean, they had known about us, but this was kind of, when we broke this, it was kind of a, you know, sort of like a, a little bit of a, a clarion call, you know, the, you know, bat signal or what have you. And so that one, and again, the way it happened and the speed at which it happened, the public nature of how it all happened, and the fact that it was a paper that so many people were, you know, if not hoping was true, at least sort of like it, it reinforced a lot of what, what they, you know, again, hoped was true or thought what might be true. Um, and, and it had been so widely covered that I think that was one that really caught people's attention. But, you know, you have one like that every year. I mean, stem cells last year, um, you can go back further than that and look at 
other stem cell stories, of course, that were attracted, you know, a decade ago by Wu Kwong in, in South Korea. So they're just, there are a lot of big, you know, big cases every year. Um, I would argue that a lot of journalists and, and some scientists, but a lot of journalists act as if I'm shocked, shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on here every time one of these happens. And, you know, we've tried to make the point, well, you know, there are five or 600 of these things a year. What about the impact of post-publication peer review um, services, which are um, a, in some, there are some new services such as PubMed Central um, and PubPeer that, that are um, starting to highlight more of this or, or provide a, a wider forum for post-publication peer review. What, has that had an impact? All of this post-publication peer review has really had a big effect. So, you know, as, as you know, listeners will know, uh, post-publication peer review is nothing new. Uh, as long as there have been journals, there has been journal club, essentially, uh, or some version of it. People ripped papers apart. They did that in basically private settings. Now what you have is places like pubpeer.com and PubMed Commons, where people can leave comments on essentially anything that has been published, anything that has you know, a DOI or PubMed ID or, or anything, because it has a URL. Uh, the difference between those two is that on PubMed Commons, you have to use your real name, and there's no, no anonymity. So there are what I would say are sort of more polite and you know, still pretty vigorous, but uh, much less critical conversations than you see on pubpeer.com, where you can be anonymous. And so it's not totally surprising that what we see a lot is a lot of corrections and a lot of retractions, actually, that happen from pubpeer.com. They, they result from the conversations there. Because actually, anytime someone leaves a comment on your paper at pubpeer.com, if you're the corresponding author, you get an email, an, an alert that says, hey, there's a conversation happening about your paper. You might want to check it out. A lot of authors are actually starting to do that, and we'll see notes like, you know what, you're absolutely right. That <clears throat> excuse me, that figure has to be uh, corrected, that, or that paper has to be retracted. Um, we haven't done a count of that, but we know that there are a number of cases that we've covered. In fact, one of the first things we do often when we see an opaque notice is go and look at what the pub peer entry says on this paper and see if that can give us some clues as to what the real reason for attraction was. So that, that's having a big effect. Well, Mr. Ransky, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. And uh, we will continue to um, pay attention to what you're doing at Retraction Watch. Oh, thanks very much for your interest, Michael. It's a great conversation and uh, happy to talk anytime. Thank you for dropping into the Skylight Kitchen podcast for August 5th, 2015. Be sure to visit the Skylight Kitchen online where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the Skylight publishing world. You can also comment on this podcast episode on his blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society of Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Michael Clark from Clark & Company. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs of the Scholarly Kitchen, bon appetit.